Welcome back, Stu. Happy to be back for the second episode of the second season. And I have quite the insidious case teed up for you. So this is one you don't you said you don't know what it is, but this is one that I've wanted to cover for months. And I would say a good number of creepers have asked for it. We are finally going to cover the mysterious death of Tamla Horsford, which I know I've brought up to you in the past. I know we've talked about it, but I I don't know that you know anything about it. Have you heard of it before? I know nothing about that, but that name, I'm already like, <sighs> that sounds like a character, Tamla Horsford. Tam- yeah, Tamla. So I think it's just- Oh, M- Tamla. Tam- well, I kept saying Tamla too, but I think she actually went by Tam and Tammy as most people knew her. This is going to take you right back to your roots because we're going back to Georgia. <gasps> now, to give Uh-oh. you like a quick like synopsis of this, so it's a case, a devastating case that came out of Georgia- where a mother went to an adult sleepover in her town like a girl's night, somehow ended up dead by morning under some very suspicious circumstances. It's surprising, but this case has not been covered a ton. Like, you don't really hear this a lot on various true crime podcasts, because you'd never heard of it, right? No. And did you say this is an adult sleepover? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's supposed to be, it sounds maybe a little strange, like, at face value, but it's kind of, the way it's described is like, a bunch of moms it's like a night of like it's a wine night and everyone's gonna like crash at the house so nobody has to like drive home it's like a girl's night sleepover but they're just like moms in their 40s it's kind of cute and feels a little more normal would you say (laughs) you're like well whatever floats your mouth doing adult sleepovers (laughs) if we're not doing those kind of adult sleepovers i'm gonna be pissed i know (laughs) it does sound fun right i mean it's but they just i mean they're not doing anything crazy they're just like drinking playing card games and like watching a football game yeah so that's the tea on that and technically it is kind of an unsolved case i guess if you take the route here of um foul play and there are lots of theories lots of places to point the finger and there is quite a bit of evidence of county corruption i mean everything about this case just kind of screams like something creep time the podcast should be covering which by the way welcome back everybody to creep time the podcast with your hosts Silas Dean and Stu. We are back for a Friday episode, and we are so happy that you stopped by to hang out with us and listen through to a case. Please make sure, just for some quick admin, that if you're not already, just... (laughs) I was like, I don't even know where I'm going with this. Just stop. (laughs) Just stop. Pause and... In the name of love. (laughs) Just pause and follow or subscribe to the podcast because we come out with new episodes every single week and we don't want you to miss them. Also, we appreciate the positive reviews. I got to say from last week's episode, the first episode of season two, the response to the cover art, the intro music, all of the reviews, the comments, the private messages, you guys are phenomenal for that because that really made our damn week. Yeah, so sweet. Oh was, my gosh. This is so it nice. Makes it feel like it just makes it feel like oh my gosh, wow, I forget we just have this awesome little community and Such a we were so base. excited about it. So for them to be just as excited was really really 
sweet. You have no idea. It meant so much to us. Stu and I were over the moon. And thank you for sitting through all of our Vegas stories. I listened back to that, by the way. Because I was like... You did. <laughs> I had to listen back to... I was like, what did we say? <laughs> what went on air? <laughs> well, my mom texted me and said, just about to listen to your, your first episode. And I'm like, oh, it's it's Casey Anthony. Like, it's, it's a big one. She was like, oh, so fun. And then I, like, stopped dead in my tracks. I was like... <gasps> It's like, what did we say about Vegas? <laughs> <laughs> Nothing she hadn't heard already. I was going to say, I'm sure she listened and giggled, but. Yeah, we, I mean, we'll get into the nitty gritty once we have um, the after hour show eventually. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but thank you again so much for the support, you guys. And again, just one more, one more thing to tee up here before we get into the top line. If you could, because this really, really does help the podcast more than you know, find a person, a friend, a family member, somebody to rope into Creep Time, the podcast, every single time you tell us that you share this with somebody in your life. I know a lot of you listen at work and you share it with coworkers. It makes this podcast soar. It is so, so valuable to us and we appreciate it more than you could know. So thank you so much for spreading the word. Thank you for keeping us top of mind. Thank you for listening every single week. And, oh my God, Stu, the contest we have Are we to, doing it right now we have to pick our winner yes we have to. so for anyone who's just tuning in last week on the first episode of season two we launched a contest a giveaway one of the existing premium subscribers would be selected at random to win a year's worth of premium for free completely paid for by Stu and i so that means all of the premium episodes yours to listen to and all of the existing and future episodes add free for 12 months so <clears throat> Stu, do you have it pulled up because i we I'm exported like... a list it was completely randomized Stu then did the randomizer and selected who our winner was i'm like where is it shoot, hold, shoot hold their up. name is their name is are you gonna announce it should i i can announce it announce I it you do, name. You, you do you do it marissa grobel come get your bag girl <laughs> I think it's Grobel or maybe Grobel, but Marissa, Marissa, Marissa you are you. our girl. We're so excited. Woo! Thank you so much for being a listener to Creep Time, the podcast, being a premium subscriber and joining every single week with us. We do have some insider tea, but we'll get to that a little bit later when we send you a surprise later on. But congratulations for winning a year's worth of Creep Time. And for everybody who was a part of that contest, thank you so much for participating. And for everybody who wants to be a part of future giveaways, there is going to be a link down in the description of this podcast where you can throw in your email so that you get all future updates about giveaways, potential contests, and updates for Creep Time, the podcast. So make sure to go enter so you don't miss out. Yay, Marissa! Congratulations, girl. Come get your bag, honey. Come get your bag, honey. (laughs) Now, with that... (laughs) Stu, are you ready to get into the top line of the Tamla Horsford case? I'm ready. And can I also just say, yes, it's a little spooky here right now. Same. It's about here. to be fall tomorrow. Is right? the so- Wait, was the solstice? I, I thought the solstice was the today. 21st. Hold on. We missed it. <gasps> or is, <laughs> we it already- missed it. is it today? <laughs> Did we miss it? Hold on. Wait, let me look this up. Go. When is the solstice? Um, the solstice. The solstice. Um, Equinox can land between, why is it, oh wait, no, you're right, Saturday, September 23rd, you're right. The autumnal, so I feel like the autumnal solstice. Autumn, it's 
Autumn baby. (laughs) Autumn baby. (laughs) Autumn baby. It's autumn baby. And this is just, I'm feeling a little, I'm feeling the spookiness right now. I'm excited. Is is the mischief like infusing? It's coming. It's starting. That's another thing, creepers. This is a perfect time to tell your friends about a new creepy, spooky podcast just to get them excited for spooky season. It is. It's our time to shine. Fall. Mm -hmm. We like (laughs) We truly ascend. I feel like something is in the air. Something makes this all feel like so much richer. And I don't know. Yeah, just like eerier. And it is spooky outside too in LA right now. It's very dreary, very overcast. And kind of like that pre-storm wind. We don't usually get storms here. here But yeah, every once in a while, we just get a random like rainstorm. So I'm kind of hoping during this, we get like a little crack of thunder. Who knows? And with that, Tamla Horsford. Let's get into some backstory here. So who was Tamla? What do we know about her? What is her backstory? So I'll fill you in just a little bit about who she was, who she is in the context of this community in Georgia, and then what we know piece by piece, minute by minute of what happened the night she died. This is going to be a sleuthery case. You're going to really, I'm going to need you to put your detective hat on and catch all the details because it's going to be theories driven for sure. Conspiracy driven, we can say. And with that, actually, before I get into it, I will say all of this and everything we will cover in this episode is purely an outside allegation of the case. These are other thoughts. We are just discussing them in tandem for the sake of conversation. These do not necessarily reflect our views as the hosts. So Tamla, she was born in 1978 in the Caribbean. And when she was 11, her whole family kind of uprooted. In 1989, they moved over to the Bronx, then later relocate down to Florida. So this is there in Florida where she actually meets her husband, Leander Lee for short. The two got married and then they were married all the way up until the time of her death. Now, Lee, he actually had a younger daughter from a previous marriage. And her and Tam actually bonded very, very quick after they got married and the dynamic was kind of mother daughter. And she really raised her like her own, even though they were not related by blood. Now, eventually Lee ends up leaving. He has to locate, relocate to coming Georgia. Do you know coming? Just curious. I do. You do know. I absolutely do. Um, Okay. I, I never really went there, but when we would drive around and like um, go a little bit outside of Atlanta, I know where that is. Yeah. Yeah, and just, I mean, it's good that you have, like, a mental roadmap of where that is in the state, but that's where they relocate to. And specifically, it is Forsyth. Some people say Forsyth, I think, but... It's Forsyth. It's Forsyth. Thank God I got it right. (laughs) (laughs) The names of some of these towns, I'm like, this is in the U.S.? (laughs) I know. It's a lot. So they relocate to that county And Tam actually grew her family with Lee. They end up having five more children, in fact, five boys, and she becomes a full-time stay-at-home mom. Now, from everyone's description of Tam or Tammy, as some knew her, she is vibrant, she has this magnetic personality, and she was constantly described as being a huge part of her kids' lives. Like, she was that parent, that mom, every single after-school activity, every sport, every like volunteer thing where a parent was needed, she is there carting these kids around, massively involved in this community. And all the descriptions of the story kind of corroborate that, which makes the case all that more devastating to think about what might have happened this night when we go in moment by moment. So that's really all of the setup of her and her backstory before we get into the timeline of the night she went to the sleepover. Any initial thoughts just before we're going to dive into the night of? 
I thought I just heard a crack of thunder, and I am now officially spooked. Maybe um, those are my knees. That's my knees <laughs> in adjusting in this chair. <laughs> that that could have been it. Um, I will say I'm already going to be pretty devastated because she has six children, basically. Yeah, yeah. Um, it's and when I get into how the news is actually delivered, because this is certainly a case where county is going to get thrown under the bus and the way they go about delivering this news to the family when her children are home mm. is brutal. It's brutal and it's inhumane. Oh my God. Yeah. I know I haven't given you a ton to like jump off of, but maybe I should get into the actual night of and just kind of set up the context of this night and this group of women. So what do we know about the night Tamla died and what exactly happened at this adult sleepover? Now, the year is 2018, and Tamla and her husband were still living in Cumming, Georgia, specifically, like I said, Forsyth, right? Forsyth County? Mm-hmm. Now, the reason this context is very relevant in her case is that Tamla is a woman of color and was, in fact, the only woman of color among this group at this adult sleepover in this county, which was predominantly white and had a very insidious history with racism. And I feel like that could be an arbitrary statement when we're considering the entire country has an insidious past with racism, an insidious present. But for this county in particular in Georgia, it is very, very specific from some Mm -hmm. of the research I found. Back in 1912, from some of the repeat lynchings and public executions of black community members in the county, they were so vast, so brutal that in just a couple of years, it had dwindled the black population down in this county from roughly 1,500 people to just five people left. (gasps) Later, many of the ongoing racial injustices in this community were protested in the late 80s, and that is when the pushback happened from the community. There was a staggering number of KKK members that came from this county, came out of the woodworks to harass the protest, and in their words, keep the county white. Mm. It is largely thought and documented by historians that Forsyth is one of the prime examples of the most effective and heinous racial cleansing initiatives in U.S. history. That is incredibly, incredibly important context here to set the scene of who Tamla was in this community of people, the people she was around, and it helps give context as to how the case was handled. So let's first address the adult sleepover here, because I, like I said, I know the way that falls in the ear. It sounds a little strange and maybe inherently sexual that is not the case like i said it is a girls night it's supposed to be a bunch of mothers who were actually moms from the school football team who were all having this like neighborhood sleepover at this one woman's house john she lives there i think by herself or no sorry with her aunt but she's divorced so tamla didn't actually know this woman all too well she had been to her house once before i think the month prior in october for the first time for a pumpkin part like carving party and other than that and like seeing her at the football games or like practice on Saturdays she really was like the odd mom out of this friend group like never directly invited by this woman or by this group of women to a location or to a party but being a friendly person and looking to make new friends in her community she got an email invite in October to come to the mom sleepover party and showed up on the evening of November 3rd Sometime in the night, something went very, very wrong in this timeline that does not make full sense even to this day 
So I am going to go minute by minute to tell you exactly what we know about the evening Tamla Horsford attended the sleepover at this mother's house. Now, before I, I'm going to ask your thoughts on this, before I get into that, I do just want to give you one extra piece of context into the night and how Tamla got invited to this, because I had actually never heard this and I've known about this case for years. Now, like I said, the sleepover is taking place at this woman's house, John. But I found out in my research that she was not actually the one who invited Tamla to her house, to the adult sleepover. It was John's friend, Stacy, who sent the Evite and actually organized the entire night and invited all the women. So it's never actually clear if it was ever John's intention to have Tamla Horsford in her home. Mm. And according to Tamla's surviving husband, Tamla was actually very nervous to go there that night. Like she felt like the odd one out and felt like, I don't want to be rude. I can't really refuse, you know, the invitation. And I don't want to give a bad impression. I don't want to leave anybody with a bad impression, but I feel uncomfortable because I don't really know these women, you know, but she goes anyway. How does that initial setup just kind of sit with you? Any first thoughts? Well, the like racial element to this, I mean, not to make it sound, not to sound trivial about it at all, but it's giving me like get out vibes, like a little bit. It's yeah. it's just the, the, that kind of backstory and then knowing she was the only black woman in the group. And also the invitation didn't come directly through the person hosting. It was somebody else. Like it just sort of already feels like she's odd man out and that racial context layered on top of it. It's just making me very uneasy at the moment. Yeah, I could, I could very, I mean, I can't, directly relate but you can get a sense of how uneasy someone would feel if they're in tamla's position you know you don't want to leave a bad impression if this is your community but at the same time of course she would feel uncomfortable you know if she wasn't the one who was directly invited or she doesn't know these women but it gets so much worse in the way that they treat her once she does show up and what's so eerie and chilling about this night is that there are countless pictures and videos of like this sleepover, this adult sleepover where like the girls are drinking and like playing games and, and like calling each other. And it looks kind of fun, but in a lot of the pictures, a lot of the videos, there have been some behavioral therapists and psychologists who have looked at these. They noticed that in a lot of these pictures and videos, Tamla is kind of pulled away from like in the group pictures with the women, a lot of the women like group together and Tamla's kind of left there, you know, standing Mm -hmm solo okay so let's keep going into the timeline of the night just that we have that i feel like that context was really important to set up the scene of what she's walking into so we get the group that arrived that evening it is comprised of roughly 10 women including tamla and including john as it is her home what was originally supposed to be just a girl's night like i said gets compromised because john's boyfriend jose barrera he showed up to the party as did stacy's husband stacy is the one who sent the invite to tamla her husband, Tom. So both the guys show up. And for what I could piece together in the description, it is supposed to be a girls' night. And the guys actually showed up because they were going to like meet there and then go out to watch the LSU game. But one of them, I'm not sure which one, wasn't feeling well. So actually asked John, you know, like, would it be okay if we just like hung in the basement and stayed away from you girls? Like, we'll watch the game down there. We won't bother you because John has like a home theater in her basement. She's a pretty well-off woman. So John agrees. The guys stay. That is important later on. So it was clocked that Tamla arrives just after 7 p.m. She comes in and immediately changes into her onesie for the pajama party. And she's like determined to have 
a great night. She's going to bond with these girls. And there were about four women there who were friends of Stacy and John, who Tamla had never met, did not know at all. So she goes out of her way to introduce herself to them. And again, she's feeling a little anxious and she's not really a part of this friend group, but she's an outgoing person and she's determined to have a good time with the other moms. She is ready to have a good night and she brought stuff to party. So she's excited when she gets there to immediately go and greet John and she hands her, you know, a really nice bottle of tequila that she brought as a gift. Like, thank you for inviting me to your home, which John reportedly refused and did so in a very rude way in front of the entire group in a sort of condescending way to the description of what John said. She goes, no, I don't drink tequila. And then Tamla tried to this is in front of the whole group of women, group like women she doesn't know. So Tamla's a little uncomfy, she tries to smooth things over. She goes, oh, no, 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 it's, you don't understand, like, it's really good tequila. It's from Mexico. It's a really nice bottle. John then takes the bottle, opens it, and starts sniffing it and making gagging noises to kind of, like, make fun of the gift and embarrass her mm-hmm. a little bit in front of the group. Now, it's not exactly the warmest welcome, would you say? Not welcoming for someone when it's your first time or, like with this group of girls it's it's definitely not very southern let me tell you you just accept the gift graciously even if you don't want it and you move on well the thing is is that john kind of initiates this it's her home but then all the women partake in making fun of the gift so it was described Mm -hmm. that tamla then because she was already changed into her onesie she went out to the porch to go smoke a quick cigarette because she was a little nervous feeling anxious about the night but she can still see them from the porch and the women could see her And they all took turns passing around the tequila to sniff it, to make gagging noises and kind of ridicule the gift. So there's a very clear sense of otherism here from the jump in this party. But Tamla, like I said, she is determined to mingle with these girls. So everybody starts to sit down. They come inside. They start drinking wine. And in fact, there were only two women there who weren't drinking that night. And they were other girlfriends of Stacey and John. But mostly everyone there is drinking, chatting, having a good time. And then I think every time after that, once everybody kind of warms up and like mingles a bit, every time Tamla goes out to the deck to have a cigarette, usually somebody goes with her. Like people are really warming up to her now. Then at one point, Tamla shares with John's aunt, who lives in John's house, um, as well as Stacy, that she brought a little bit of weed if they want to go out on the back deck to smoke a little bit. So they do, John's aunt and Stacy. And then John catches them and she's livid absolutely livid and the reason she's livid is because jose is there her boyfriend and jose actually works in law enforcement that is also very important to this case he was a Mm. pre-trial probations officer so john's upset that they have weed and they brought weed into her house so it's it's not a big deal it was harmless there was no ill intent but tamla's like got it no problem let's put it out and then she just goes back inside they start having snacks they watch the game they're drinking. Everybody's having a good time. And the guys actually come upstairs at halftime so they can eat uh, with the girls. So it's Tom and Jose. They're up and they're mingling as well. That is also important. There were two women who planned to go home that night and they were not going to sleep over. And then there's one additional woman who shows up very late. She's the last person to show up between 10 to 1030. So it's after this that Tamla ends up FaceTiming her husband and gets all her kids on the phone to say, hi, I love you guys. I hope you're having a good night. And she's doing this like in the living room. So she gets all the women there like who are around her to like say hi to her family. So they see her kids. So then all the girls play cards against humanity. They do this for a couple of hours. They're continuing to drink. 
And although it is never described that Tamla has had so much to drink that she's somehow like incapacitated, she's certainly buzzed at this point, but she's very, very lucid. Everyone can corroborate that. It now rolls around to 12.45 a.m. This is where a bunch of the women start kind of like, kind of winding down and they're like starting to look around, figuring out like, okay, so where are we going to sleep for the night? And they're kind of pairing off, you know, like they've got a silly movie on in the background, like Shrek is playing, I think. And they're figuring out like, okay, who's going to be your sleeping buddy? So everybody buddies up except for Tamla. Tamla is again left on the outside and there is no one who's going to sleep with her. So she gets left out and she's going to be left to sleep on the downstairs living room couch solo. According to the reports of the other women, she was still in really high spirits, really positive, and she's kind of bummed, you know, that she doesn't have a sleeping buddy, but it's not a big deal. She's actually still feeling energetic and excited, and she wants to stay up a little bit longer. So she's, like, trying to get the other girls to, like, stay up with her, but it's very clear everybody wants to go to sleep. She allegedly was like, you know what, I I think I'm probably going to drive home. And they were like, no, you can't drive home because you've been drinking. This is what they say. Although it's suggested she was probably only mildly drunk at this point and that she was not incapacitated to the point where she could not drive or didn't know her limits. But regardless, Tamla's like, okay, I won't make a problem. I'll stay. So she spends the night. And as all the other women go down to sleep, she is the last one awake. That is the last piece of information here that is very important. So let's just pause there and just talk about the night thus far. Because it does feel very clear that many of these women did not want to go out of their way to make her feel welcome or comfortable in this home, which I know we said before, but I feel like it's reinforced by the timeline of the night. Yeah. Well, it sort of feels like to me, they're trying to pigeonhole her as like the party girl or something like based on the tequila and the weed, like trying to paint this picture of her that she's so, you know, crazy or whatever, but I'm sure she's like a mom with six kids. It's like, all right, this is my one night to like hang out. I want to get loose. Yeah. And then I always think like anytime men are in the equation when they're, you didn't think they were going to be there. That always kind of throws the vibe a little bit. Um, That was part of the reason I think she didn't want to stay over actually. Ah, yeah. Well, I was just thinking that I'm like, I don't want to sleep alone on the couch if, there's like two other dudes and not, not that I would ever assume like they do anything, but if I don't know them, they're strangers. Like, yeah, it's that, somebody else's house, odd. you know, and yeah. you, especially if you've been made to feel like on the outside looking in for the entire yeah. night. And now you've got this curveball that like you've got these two guys and this it's it. Yeah, I can see how you'd be like, you know what? I think I'm just not feeling it. I think I'm going to I'm going to go home tonight. But regardless, she does stay. And. There was another point that you brought up that was interesting. Oh, the party girl thing. It's so interesting mm-hmm. you bring that up because there was another woman there. I think her name was Jen. That goddamn Jen. Sorry, we were talking about the <laughs> we were talking about the Wisconsin video, different episode. Um, she was like blackout drunk, this woman. Like she was like drank okay. so much early on in the night that I think she had to be like put to bed early. So when we talk about like the other moms partying, like everybody was drinking. Everybody was going hard and like having a good time that was the point they could drink because no one was supposed to drive yeah. home so yeah I, I, it's like unfairly pinned on her that she's like the rowdy one mm-hmm. now let's get into the people who saw her some of the witnesses who saw her the last to see her alive that night so the last people or one of the last people who was around tamla that night was allegedly this woman named bridget 
Um, she's one of the girlfriends of John and Stacy, and I don't know that she was one of the football moms. I actually don't think she was. I think she was just one of the girlfriends. And Jose, the boyfriend of the homeowner, John, also saw Tamla very late that night. At around 1 to 1.30, when everyone was already going to sleep, they're already tucked away, um, and they were either upstairs or in other rooms, Tamla and Bridget were actually the only two left up in the downstairs kitchen talking because Tamla was going to go out to have one last cigarette before bed. And Jose came down the stairs from John's room because he had to go downstairs to the basement to get his charger because he left it downstairs when he was watching the game. So he passed the kitchen and the living room where he saw Tamla having a bowl of gumbo with Bridget while Bridget waited for a ride. Now, to clarify, Bridget was waiting for a ride because she decided last minute she wanted her husband to come pick her up because she just felt uncomfortable, which is another woman who was like, you know, the dynamics have changed. There's guys here now and I have some anxiety. I don't really want to stay. Um, so I do just want to mention that at this point, Jose is clearly going to sleep over, like I said, as is Stacy's husband, Tom. So we got those two guys there. This will play into the theories later. Bridget is technically, after Jose goes up and back to bed, the last person that we know who verified that they saw Tamla alive. Because husband Gary, her husband, he shows up, I think around, let's see... It's close to 146 or 147 in the morning. Um, he shows up in the driveway and then she describes that Tamla walked her over to the door, gave her a hug and kiss goodbye, and then made sure she got out to the car okay. We know this happened because John's home, this is very interesting, is set up with an Xfinity security system, which had door sensors and recorded alerts of every single door that opened and closed and also provided a log that was sent to John's phone to detail which door it was. So the timestamp here is that the door is open for Bridget to go out to meet Gary at 1.47 a.m. And then the door closed. <clears throat> you hear me get choked up. <clears throat> oh, my God. Immediately after that, door closes at 1.47. This is when we know Tamla went to the back patio and opened the door. Back door at 1.49 a.m. And then closed it at 1.50. It is believed that this is her going out to smoke that last cigarette, close the door behind her, and then that back door opened again seven minutes later at 1.57 a.m. For whatever reason, it was not closed afterwards, according to the log. The next timestamp we have is the front door of the home opening at 4.10 a.m., which was allegedly... No. Well, okay, so... Here's the context of that. 4.10 a.m., very, very early in the morning. Allegedly, it was this other woman, Marcy, who had to get up very, very early to go head home because she was starting the second day of work at a new job that morning at Coach. What's odd about that statement is that later on in the case, they obtain work records and find out her shift didn't actually start until around 10.30 a.m., so that was pretty early for her to be up and, like, leaving the place, like, walking out the door at four in the morning. Just seemed a little strange to the timeline, but not impossible. We don't have that front door opening again until 7.30 a.m. This is allegedly when Paula, the last woman who arrived at the party the night before at 10, she's leaving at 7.30 a.m. Now, between 8 to 8.30 a.m., this is when Tom and Stacy they woke up, they head downstairs, and they got to go straight home because it's her sister who's actually watching... Their kids. So they're out the door. 
they do not see Tamla. But what Stacy does see when she comes down is her phone next to Tamla's because that's where she left it. And she remembered seeing Tamla's phone and having this sense of like relief and like excitement. Like, oh my God, she did stay over. She spent the night, even though she's not on the couch. So she's just assuming maybe she's up and in the bathroom or something. Now it's within this time frame that John's aunt, who I think her name is Madeline, she wakes up after 8 a.m., comes downstairs, and she's going to start a pot of coffee. While walking through the kitchen, past the back door of the deck, she caught something out of the left corner of her eye in the backyard of the home. Laying face down on the ground beneath the drop of the deck was Tamla in her white onesie, motionless and completely flat to the ground. Now, oddly enough, her initial instinct of panic was not to scream, call for help, or call 911. Her initial instinct was to get on her knees and pray. Very Southern. Extraordinarily Southern. I have a story I could share about my own experience dropping to my knees and praying in a bad situation. I know exactly we what story that is. We won't go there. <laughs> I was like, I you certainly do not want to be <laughs> associated with Madeline quite yet. No, 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 no. But that image, though, that initial image coming down to start <sighs> coffee in the backyard of this house, Tamla Horsford is face down on the ground. Also, I I feel like the first reaction to pray, it's like, don't you want to go in, out there and make sure she doesn't have like alcohol poisoning and she's not like dead drunk or something? I don't even know if she could process what she was seeing. So this is this isn't the only thing she does. It's interesting what she does here. Maybe this will color this a little bit more. So she's on her knees. She's praying. And then what's very suspicious is that she goes up to John's room because she's John's on. She goes up the stairs. And she goes to like knock on the door and she describes that she could hear through the door. This is in her actual statement. It sounded like John and Jose were already awake and that maybe there was water running, like a shower was going or something. Instead of banging on the door like, hey, there's an emergency, she goes back downstairs to the window to look at Tamla again and then decides to go back upstairs once more and then knock on the door. And this time John says, come in. Madeline goes and goes, I need to talk to Jose, the boyfriend, not to Madeline or not to John. I need to talk to Jose. To her description, John is like, what's going on? Like, say what you have to say. And then she says out loud in front of John and Jose, your friend from the islands is outside on the ground, not moving. Now, the description Hold on, I have a message coming. Jesus Christ. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> no. <clears throat> now. The description of this exchange is interesting because according to Madeline's testimony, she says that by the time she went up to that door, the first time she heard running water, like a shower, to suggest that Jose and John were awake. In John and Jose's eventual statement, they claimed they weren't awake. They were actually dead asleep and that she woke them up knocking on the door and coming in. So there's a little friction in those statements. There's some contradiction there as to what one heard versus what one is saying happened. Little sus from the beginning. It is recorded that John, the owner of the home, made her first phone call to 911. And I do have that call. Like I said, I am going to play it for you. And I want you to listen very carefully to the way she describes the situation on the call. Because a lot of people have suggested that this call is a bit suspicious. Because what they're doing is something that is usually a very clear tell of a premeditated call. Because they're explaining the entirety of the situation. And possibly the backstory of what happened 
without being prompted by the operator. When they start explaining motive without being prompted, usually that is a telltale sign that someone has the intention of selling through a story. So I'm going to get this call ready for you. But in the meantime, any initial thoughts just on the discrepancy of Madeline, the aunt's testimony, versus John and Jose's testimony, that they were asleep. She says, no, I heard you awake. Uh, Well, when you said that there was water running, I was like, were they trying to wash something off of them? Were they... Taking a shower could be a very big indicator. Talking, and maybe they had the water running, you know, like trying to come up with something. I That's where my initial thoughts went. Um, I... I still just think it's so bizarre that she didn't go out there the second she saw the body. What, what? That's your house. What are you doing? Yeah. Well, yeah. I, I mean, she never really says why. And maybe she was just terrified. She directly goes to get Jose. And there could have been two reasons for that. Maybe she thought that, like, since he's in law enforcement, he would know what to do. Or mm-hmm. maybe she thought, we need your help. Because, like, mm-hmm. something's happened out there. So I've got the the call. I'm going to – this one is upsetting because there is a ad in front of it. Okay. I'm going to tee this up. I'm not going to play the whole thing because it is quite long. But what you're going to hear first is you're going to hear John calling 911. And then the second that she starts to kind of maybe, allegedly, unravel a little bit on the phone, she hands it off to Jose to do all the talking. Okay. And okay. Jose is a little more prepped for this works in law enforcement. So, here we go. I'm down to one. Hi, yes. Um, I, I need an ambulance. I'm going to my home. What's the address? <laughs> the court? Like, Woodlet. Woodlet, okay. All right. Woodlet Court, what is your name? My name is John Myers, J-E-A-N-N-E. Okay, and your phone number is 60 or They just block oh. it out. Yeah. Just oh, okay. okay, what's going on? Um, we had people over last night when we were drinking. Most of us went to bed. One of them stayed on the balcony. She was drinking, and we just went out, outside, and she's been face down in the backyard. It looks like me. I'm guessing maybe she fell off the balcony. But she's stiff. Okay, is she breathing? I don't know. I don't know if she's face down. Okay. Hold on. How old is she? At 41. Here, hold on. Hey, this is Jose Pereira. Hey, have y'all checked to see if she's breathing? She's not moving one bit. She's not breathing. Um, I just tried to assess her Tesla. She's completely face down in the yard um she is stiff okay do you know if she um, um do you see blood or anything where she uh, are you there i am okay I'm sorry, I was outside. it's okay i'm not sure what happened to lana for a second do you see any blood or anything to where from where she fell um i i don't know if i should move her over i mean she's completely face down Okay, I mean, can you just check and see if she's breathing? If, if she's not breathing and you, and you know she's gone, then just leave her where she's at. If she... Okay. So, I'll pause it there because he then steps away from 
the phone for a little bit to allegedly just go touch the leg of the body. And he did not move her in any other way, so he says. He then goes on for a little bit to kind of do the same thing that John was getting at with saying, looks like she fell, she might have been suicidal, I think there's a a suicide cut on her wrist. So it's a lot of making statements claiming someone fell off a balcony, making statements claiming that they saw her alive previously, not too long ago, and then making statements that she was drinking, jumped off a balcony, could have been suicidal. It's surprising, like I said, but it's usually not normal that people string together a story on a 911 call. It is usually a sign that something is very calculated to fill in the blanks. What are your initial thoughts and takeaways? How about the fact that they just don't sound very panicked at all? Not at all. And that <laughs> I, I, I don't, gets worse. Ugh. I don't care if, if they didn't know her or didn't like her. I mean, there's a dead body potentially on your property. You're going to be like, oh, my God, get somebody here fast. Like, uh, no matter what. It is so, so the- chilling. So chilling to hear, like, how flippant they become through all of this and how bizarrely normal they feel like this is. Like, it's an inconvenience is the way they're, totally. they're acting. And and also, I feel like because he's in law enforcement, my thought was he was going to get on the phone and say, hi, this is Jose, whatever his last name is. I'm, you know, I work with um, station, whatever, yeah, in law yeah, enforcement. Yeah. Here's my assessment of the scene. Like, I don't know. So, or just this is what I see. Because I'm sure he's familiar with how 911 calls go and should Yeah, go. like what would like, be relevant information? Yeah. Um I also maybe I'm just I'm just being a you know what but when he said she's completely face down it's like it just the whole thing felt like an oversell it's like she's either face down or she's face up like she's completely face down it's like what? yeah it's a little redundant you know it's like a little thou doth protest too much on the except thou doth explain too much i feel like with this well he gets a little if we go further into the 911 call i think in total it's a little over seven minutes because it does take police seven minutes to get to the home after they're dispatched at exactly 9 a.m but it's interesting because when we go a little bit further into that call it's it's as plain as black and white like the way he describes what he sees for the body and the way all of the women describe the body that is very important because saying she's completely face down the reason i think they might have said that is because the way she apparently looked when they all saw her was very disturbing because she was planking on the ground like her face was directly into the dirt of the backyard arms at her side completely firm at her side palms up feet together legs straight very unusual and unnatural position for someone Mm -hmm. who fell off a balcony totally and that the craziest part about that is that that description of how they all initially saw her has not deviated like it's burned into their memories they've gone on record to say it but the way the coroner and the investigators allegedly found her is different So here's where we're going to get into some of like where this case gets a little muddy. And they described Tamla, like I said, she's got her arms to her side. um, And then when police show up, the coroner shows up, what they actually find is one of her arms is out to the side, bent at the elbow and hand is up by the head. One of the arms is out to the side, bent at the elbow, hand is down by the hip. Face is turned to one side slightly that is not the way it was described on the phone that is not the way the witnesses described finding the body the morning of 
So if Jose says, I didn't move the body, all I did was touch her leg, she's stiff. And then we've got county police and a county coroner who come and they say, no, this is the way we found the body. It's kind of a question of, well, somebody moved that damn body. So mm-hmm. who do we believe here in this case? I don't know. How does that sit and how does that feel right off the bat? So approximately what time did they find or start making the phone call? And was it daylight? It was daylight. So when Madeline comes down, first sees the body, it's shortly after 8.30, we think. And then there's about 15 to 20 minutes of her going upstairs, going back downstairs, going back upstairs in between the praying, and then alerting Jose and John. John comes down the stairs to see this and makes the first phone call at 8.59. By 9 a.m., police are dispatched. They arrive by 9.07. I guess what I'm thinking is if they did end up moving the body after making the 911 call and everybody at the party said that they found her, she appeared to be in that plank position, Mm -hmm. wouldn't that mean if somebody moved the body that either A, everybody from the party would have had to have been like rushed out of the house and then John and Jose would have moved the body or did they all like come together and say, okay, we're going to move her body to make it look like she fell and everybody were just going to say that we saw, we found her the same way. So here's where I think. How did they move the body? This is what I'm thinking because all of these women at the party went on the record, including John, to say, John actually says, I think, in her official statement, she goes, like, how, she talks about how disturbing it was to see such an unnatural position for what theoretically looked like a fall, right? I mean, she's at the bottom of this upper balcony, and I can send you pictures of the home, too, so you can actually see it. It's about 14 Mm -hmm. feet high. When somebody falls, they do not look like that. They don't have their arms to their side. They don't have pin straight legs and just a face directly down at the ground. But she said that image is burned into her memory and there is no doubt in her mind that, that is exactly the way that she first saw the body. And it's corroborated by the aunt, Madeline. And like I said, there were already, I think, four people who had left. I think Paula left. Marcy was out. Same with Tom and Stacy. They had already... And Bridget never stayed the night. So there's a group of women and people that had already left the home at this point. So what's assumed is that that might have been the initial position everyone saw the body. And then by the time county coroner, county police came, especially if they knew Jose, which some of them did, it's possible they played with that body a little bit to reposition it so that they could close this case pretty quick. Because a body that has no evidence that it braced for a fall put its arms up, broken arm or something, that's probably not a body that fell. But Mm -hmm. a body that has their head, like, tilted to one side, it's got an arm up by their head, got an arm down by the hip, in, like, falling man's position, that's a body that tells a different story. Mm -hmm. So this is the big question about who moved the body and why did they do it? Was it a cover-up? Was it laziness? Was it malpractice? Was it trying to close a case where something insidious probably did happen here and the bigger question is if she didn't fall what the hell happened to tamla horsford so then we're going to jump into a little bit of the medical examination and what really goes on with this case but i just wanted to give you some initial context as to how she was found and just how strange that image is could Mm -hmm. you uh, like visualizing that is chilling it's chilling 
the idea of her being in the plank position is so scary. It's like so like unnatural. Like yeah, just like so ooh. unnatural. Yeah. Yeah. And I I know like the gut reaction to that is like very visceral and feels very off. And according to the coroner's report and the medical examination that would come from this body later, Tamla's body was found with lacerations on her neck, her legs, her wrist, <gasps> and her face. Now, I don't I, I can admit because obviously we're not forensic examiners, but and we're not medical examiners, but it wouldn't seem consistent to me to have all of those cuts and lacerations on a body that just went did like a single stop fall, you know? It's not rolling down a cliff. It's from deck to ground. Okay. You know what I need to address is like who is Tamala the closest with in this group? Quite literally, or was no it one. really just the football mom thing? It, I think it was the football mom thing, like included okay. because like you're a part of this group that our kids are in, kind of thing. But this was really, I if I had to guess, I would say Stacy might have been because she was the one who sent the email invite, the e bite. Mm-hmm. But we don't really know I, for sure because I feel like they really shot themselves in the foot by saying it looks like she is suicidal or like you can't make a statement about a stranger with, you know, even if they have cuts or whatever, there is not a chance that I would feel comfortable enough to go on record in a 911 call and be like, it looks like she was potentially suicidal. I guess unless maybe the night before she had disclosed stuff to me that she did things to herself, which she never did is the thing. Everyone just described her as like being in high spirits the entire night. And she was FaceTiming her kids saying, I love you. Like none of that seems to align with someone who's suicidal. Right. We don't know for sure, but yeah, I agree with you entirely. Like it's, it's an odd thing to declare right out the gate. And also usually if you're suicidal, you're planning your suicide. I don't think you're going to go and fall off of a building at a random adult sleepover. You know what I mean? Like, it just feels like they really overshot the mark by, like, mentioning that at all. It sounds like they're trying to cover up something that happened with the lacerations. Yeah, I I would say so. I mean, again, this is all an allegation. We don't know if this is any of this can be corroborated, but something about this feels inherently off. The position of the body the height, the sheer height of the deck. I mean, 14 feet, I would never assume is like going to kill anybody, but maybe not, mm-hmm. you know, it just seems yeah. like too, too low for a death, maybe a break, like a really bad break. But mm-hmm. I would never assume that a 14 foot jump off a deck is something that could kill somebody, especially yeah. the idea of somebody going face down, not bracing with their arms, with their hands. It's odd. So I'm going to get I'm going to keep going with some of the timeline of what continued on this morning because the investigation is happening in real time. There's a body in the backyard. Police are at this home. We've got people who were there the night before who are now gone. So all of those who are currently in the home are asked to wait there for questioning. And then they are also asked to call back the others who were there the night before so they could be questioned as well. It is very, very important to note that while the crime scene is being surveyed and the body is being inspected and removed, the entire group of women and two men are left alone in a single room to speak to each other for an hour before anyone is questioned individually about the night before. That smells Ugh. some pretty bad news. When we are looking at this investigation and it, something possibly malicious went down, 
Because statements and stories, it may not even be that, like, everyone is guilty here. It could possibly be that it just takes one person to say something and another in the group to corroborate it for it somehow to be fact, especially if you were drinking Mm -hmm. the night before. It's incredibly dangerous, especially for someone's memory of an event that's kind of hazy when they're under a lot of stress, when, like, something horrific has happened. So within within a couple of hours of that morning after the questioning and the removal of the body, um, police end up at the Horsford home where her children answer the door. This is when officers ask to speak to the father. So this is awful. But Lee comes to the door and they go and, you know, they ask, they go, is your name Lee? And he goes, what is this pertaining to? Officers immediately meet him with disrespect and they take it as a challenge against their power. And they go, we asked you, is your name Lee? And he says, I'm asking you again, what is this pertaining to? They then outright, very cold, very callous, say, your wife, Tamla, she's dead. <gasps> no compassion, no care. In, in what would be the most devastating day in this man's life when the majority of her children are home? Adolescents, kids unprepared to hear that their mother is dead it's horrible awful no matter what stance you take in this the way it was handled by county police is just complete bull i mean just awful awful disregard so if there's anything i learned from the jean bonnet episode it's that the second there are multiple people in the house and something has gone wrong. You put everybody in separate rooms for questioning. Like Absolutely. The minute. That's the first thing that, that law enforcement is supposed to do. Or, I mean, investigators are supposed to do. No, seriously, though. But it's kind of like, I mean, this is a parallel case in that way in that it's county having never seen a scenario like this. You know, like bad mm-hmm. things happen in small towns, but big potential murders don't always happen. So sometimes they just forget protocol. And that's not an excuse. Or in this case, it's possible they intentionally forgot protocol. Mm-hmm. So he, they tell him she's dead. He's in complete disbelief because he just FaceTimed with her, what, the night before? Late, like midnight? He actually thinks they have the wrong person. He's like, no, 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 no. He, he was like, you have to have the wrong woman. It just does not make sense. And what's very interesting is that police are already feeding him a story about what happened, even though... This is like real time. Like the investigation is very much open. Her body is still on the ground at this other house. And they're telling him she she tripped and fell off the top deck of a home and died on impact. There's no medical examination. There's no criminal investigation of what seems like a very complex and unusual crime scene here. And yet they're already definitively telling this man on the very day they're saying your wife is dead. She fell off a deck and died. End of story. So... I'm going to jump into the medical examination and what they find. But before I do, I have to preface for you. Who's doing it? If you remember from the Kendrick Johnson case, because this is in Georgia, the Georgia Bureau of Investigations, the ones that lost his organs, they're on the case. They're handling Tamla's body. So from, from the jump... We've already got some stuff that goes out the window and whether or not we can trust this examination is very much up for debate. So here's what they note in the official medical report. They describe small abrasions that were found on her legs, some on her face, her wrist, as well as her neck. Basically everything that was described before that didn't seem consistent. 
And then although there are no serious external injuries, they put in their report that she had severe damage and injury to her head, her neck, and her back. Spells out a story that could maybe suggest 14-foot fall without bracing. According to the toxicology report in the medical examination, her blood alcohol level was at 0.238, which is more than two times the legal limit and probably, I think I did a, a chart for this, somewhere around five drinks between 8 p.m. to 1 a.m. So That's certainly, really high. It seems really high. According to her husband and those who were around her that night, she was holding her liquor pretty well. Yeah. Like she... He, I think her husband said something. He was like, my, my wife and I, like, like she's from the Caribbean. Like, we're from the islands. Like, we can hold our yeah. liquor. Like, she would never, ever have gotten messy to the point where she would fall off something like this. But again, that could be survival grief. Who knows? They also found small amounts of THC in her system, which tracks with the story of the weed on the back deck. But then they also found Xanax in her system. Which is very interesting because Tamla did not have a prescription for Xanax. No one knows where she would have gotten it. There was no evidence in any of her belongings that she brought Xanax. And what was also really interesting about that is that it was not yet metabolized in her liver. Which suggests it was taken very, very late into the night shortly before she died. Either intentionally or unintentionally. Oh god. According to the official medical report, the cause of death, this is what's put out by the GBI, it is attributed to multiple blunt force injuries consistent with a fall and the death is ruled as accidental. This report comes out on February 2019 and it's made public. There is no additional evidence on the body that can suggest or support injuries consistent with foul play. So here is where the credibility of the autopsy goes under. Are you ready? Oh my God, yes. For whatever reason... And this is a direct and deliberate violation of protocol. There were no photographs taken of the body during the autopsy to corroborate what was found and documented on paper, which is extremely, extremely unusual. There always have to be photos taken in the autopsy so that you can visually corroborate what the medical examiner is writing. That's standard practice. This is also unusually consistent with just how poorly documented the crime scene was as there were very, very few photos taken of her body. In fact, allegedly only five, none of which show her face. That's a little fishy. It shows Beyond fishy. It shows the position of her arms and hands. Like, look, this is how we found the body kind of thing. And then it shows the cut on the wrist, like everything they said in the call. Like, she has a cut on her wrist. Could be a suicide cut. No actual photos of her face. Nothing like that. Just five pictures of the crime scene. No autopsy photos. It's bizarre. This is starting to feel really, really dark. Yeah, it's it will. It's 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 completely immobilizing, I would say. Is that the right word? Yeah, like it's it's paralyzing, I guess, for a family yeah. because it just feels like they're everyone is being completely shut out. From the truth and it's a group effort it's people who were on the scene it's cops who were on the scene it's the gbi i mean when you've got like the georgia bureau of investigations running your autopsy and it feels like you can't trust that like you're seeing holes in how it was conducted that's paralyzing you have a whole institution that's against you i think the reason why i'm saying that it feels dark is that 
it just kind of hit me in my gut, like, again, thinking about how she was the only person of color there. And then it's just starting to feel like that's becoming more and more like, you know, an element. I mean, obviously it was yeah. the beginning, but it's it's very quickly feeling like, okay, this is going to be a horrible look for a bunch of white people hosting a sleepover. And then the one for sure, even if nothing went, even if it had no racial like underbelly to it, that it's going to look terrible. So why don't we just like cover this up for, or not be as thorough for their sake and our sake so that it doesn't become this like huge racial issue Absolutely, is how I'm feeling, which feels so dark because it doesn't feel like we're getting justice properly. No, it seems like people were trying to close something very quickly for exactly what you're talking about. And I should also note that I think this part of Georgia and this community, this county, um, is pretty affluent. I think I, I saw them on like a top 20 list of one of the most affluent affluent counties in the country. So there certainly is a bit of, um, I don't know, maybe f- financial motive isn't the right phrasing here. But you know what I mean? Like people who have a lot to protect go to great lengths to do so in some very insidious ways. Sure. And they line a lot of pockets sometimes. I'm not making any accusations here. Again, all allegations, um, outside allegations. <laughs> but that we've certainly seen very affluent people and very affluent families try not to fall and try not to fall hard. Yeah. They start suing people too. I mean, John, she starts suing people for like defamation with this case. I mean, I was going to say, I think coming if I remember correctly, is sort of, it's definitely, I think, north of Atlanta, but it's sort of, there's a whole area outside of Atlanta that's like Marietta, Alpharetta, and mm-hmm. kind of all of the that area is very affluent. So that checks out. I'm pretty sure Cumming is right around that area. I'm happy I picked a Georgia case because you're like a little atlas. You've got all the... The, the towns that I've never even heard of, like ready to roll out. Well, coming's hard to forget. <laughs> it's true. It Sorry. Well, <laughs> I'll get us back on track real quick because there there are a couple of theories that got put forward initially, which is crazy. I can't even believe that they they suggest this. But the first theory that police put forward actually before the medical examination is that she actually was on ground level. Because don't forget, we have a timestamp of doors opening and closing which does not make sense for any of this, right? So they think she was actually on the ground level in the backyard to have a cigarette when she tripped on a small metal lip in the ground and went face first. And that was what killed her, which is so absurdly dramatic and ridiculous. It's actually, it's crazy to believe that they put that forward as like a legitimate theory. That's insane. Tripped, fell face first. (laughs) What? Like, come on, y'all. Well, I mean, the problem is, is that the other conclusive theory is that she fell 14 feet face down from the upper balcony. We know that, but it does not seem consistent with her injuries, which is strange. The body was described by multiple witnesses, like I said, face down on the ground. That has not changed. The hands were at the side. She did not brace for impact, which is confusing, considering, according to the autopsy that the GBI put out, there was no significant damage to her face. Nothing that could suggest a face-first fall. No broken nose, according to the autopsy. All of her teeth were intact. And yet they're suggesting that she went down face-first so hard that the blunt force trauma of that impact killed her. 
I don't know about that. It's really hard to imagine. It is. This is really bringing me back to a, a dark place in college. There was an incident where somebody fell off of something and it was at a party. I remember you telling me about thing. this. But it was very high up in the air, certainly three times as high as 14 feet. Um, did they die? They did die. Okay. And I guess the reason why I bring it up is that there was, I feel like, just a lot of initial, how how are we going to, like, cover this up and stage it and um, just... Anytime the drinking and the drugs are involved, it just makes it so everybody just like panics and is frantic because it's like we were Absolutely. doing something we weren't supposed to be doing and or we let it get too far. And it's just it, it makes me so upset in ins- instances like this, because just if if you can just be honest and try to get it, just admit like that nobody was looking after her, somebody probably should have stayed up with her and here are the facts like what were the facts of the evening and not this whole like i I, you know Mm -hmm. i didn't do anything we went to bed like it's just or even worse trying to like sell a story trying to like fabricate a story because even if there was innocence here there they know what this will look like so they're trying to fill in or fill in the blanks i would say but honestly there are a few details here that do not spell innocence to me for one i want to talk about that xanax that we kind of skimmed over that strange amount of Xanax that was taken, not metabolized in her liver. Where did that come from? Like, we have to, I mean, I know it was a party night, but no one else there claimed to have given her Xanax. No one else had it on them, except for Bridget. Bridget had Xanax, but I think she was ruled out because she only had hers and it was, she never gave it to Tamla. Tamla had no evidence that she brought Xanax. So where did it come from? Why was it, why did she take it or why was it given to her? That's what I'm wondering. I'm wondering if at the end of the night when it was just the two of them talking, Mm -hmm. that, is there a world where she could have had it just on her person and Bridget? Tamala, yeah, and Tamala took one or something? Like, that's what I I thought. I I was like, the the most likely scenario is that Bridget did have it and like offered it to Tamla mm-hmm. and then lied about that later because Bridget actually, this is a weird detail, but she, like I said, she suffers from anxiety. So she actually keeps her Xanax in a necklace around her neck, which I'm two steps away from any, any day now, but <laughs> that's Lisa Renan behavior. <laughs> I know, I know, but I was like, yeah, I could absolutely see them like kind of bonding like late at night in the kitchen after they've been drinking or like partying a little bit and having like a heart to heart. And she's like, let me give you something. It'll help you sleep, you know, because you don't have a sleeping mm-hmm. buddy tonight. That made complete sense to me. But Bridget denies that to this day. She de- And maybe, I mean, we could have an argument and say, like, of course she would deny it because she's going to be the one who could potentially be at fault if she gave her the lethal combination that sent her over yeah. a railing. Well, and it could also be that she gave it to her earlier in the evening when she was very, very intoxicated and just quite literally forgot Yeah. Yeah. That's very possible too. Well, we should also talk about, so if we're going down that road of thinking that Tamla had Xanax and it was mixing with the alcohol in her system, maybe like a little bit of weed and she's crossfaded and she goes over a balcony. I want to talk about the height of the actual railing on this balcony, four and a half feet high. Tamla's just about five, five. Does that not seem like an unusual 
scenario to go flying off a balcony face first. Super unusual. Like I, you'd have I can't to be, imagine that. You have to be standing on the balcony, right? Yeah. You'd have to like like get yourself over the railing. Like it feels intentional. Yeah. But that yeah. coupled with like the lacerations found on the legs, the wrist, the neck, and the face. Come on. There's something here we don't know, right? Well, maybe I, I should really should, should I run through the inconsistencies just so we yeah, can like recap? Yeah, run okay. Because I, I want to make sure I don't say something I shouldn't say. Okay, so I'm gonna I'll give you like a recap <laughs> of everything that we know, and I'm just gonna reiterate like the strangeness of the doors opening and closing, because I think that is the smoking gun here. So let's talk about the inconsistencies in the evidence and first start with the security system at John's house. There are three really important timestamps, like I was saying, that we have to pay attention to that spell out the story that maybe, maybe something in the log was tampered with. One is 1.49 a.m. when it's believed Tamla went out the back door. She then closes the back door at 1.50. Next timestamp, security log says 1.57, she opened the same door, presumably to come back inside. This is all consistent, but the security log says the door was never closed. That doesn't make sense because by the time 911 call and allegedly showed up and went out that door, the door was closed. Next timestamp we have is 4.10 a.m. when that front door opens. So we're getting this like strange narrative here about like the last cigarette and for when it when they show up and they're surveying the scene. Here's the thing that's like odd to me. She went out the downstairs back door right she's ground level with the backyard the alleged cigarette and lighter is found upstairs on the deck where she presumably fell so i guess the assumption is that she went out the back door to have this cigarette and then came back inside at 157 leaving that door open and then never closed it and then went back outside up the outside stairs to the top deck where she put the cigarette and the lighter down because it was found on a fire pit up there and then accidentally fell off the upstairs balcony straight down. That's kind of what they're suggesting. Something doesn't seem right about that. It, it, well, here's the thing, too, is like I was wondering, I'm like, well, that cigarette and that lighter, they should be, you know, checked for fingerprints and things. Of course, of course, of course, of course, for the story, Jose allegedly moved them. So he put them oh. when he so after Madeline came upstairs and she was like, I need Jose. She was like, your, your friend from the islands is outside, like face down, which is a racist statement. She's outside yeah. face down. He allegedly is going outside to go check the body in an emergency situation as law enforcement. He said, I swear to God, this is in his statement. He goes, the cigarette and the lighter were in my way on the ground. So I picked them up and put them. Oh, my God. Girl, I was like, and then like in the investigation, they were like, sorry, you picked up a cigarette and a lighter when you were going to check to see if somebody was alive. And he's like, they were in my way. He goes, I have OCD problems. So I had to pick them up and put them <gasps> on this fire pit. <laughs> this is what he says. It's extraordinarily far-fetched, in my opinion. Like, extraordinary. To say that, yeah. I mean, come on. I can, I can smell it. I can smell bull. 
when it's in front of if me. If you had OCD, wouldn't you go put them back where you think that they should be? Like not up on a random fire pit on the deck? Wouldn't you go put them in a drawer or throw them away? Yeah. Well, I think so to give you like the roadmap of his foot traffic, because it's not clear to me, it would be crazy to me if he went down like through the downstairs back door sees her body and then found the cigarette and lighter is like, I've got to go put these up on this upstairs deck. I think he came out through the deck door. So he's already on the upstairs deck and he's claiming, I saw the cigarette and the lighter first. And I was like, let me put these to the side. And then I saw her body, even though he, he claimed this was so confusing in his statement. Cause he was like, and then I saw her body. You knew about her body because Madeline just told you that this yeah. woman is face down in the backyard. It's an emergency. Not moving. I just, oh my God. It made me so mad when I heard that. Was your initial, what was your initial reaction to that just now? Well. Fishy. What I was going to say when I said, I don't want to say something that I shouldn't say. My gut was telling me something is weird about Jose. So something might have gone down with Jose, and I'm not saying. Girl, you have he tried no idea. I'm, but I I'm feel gonna, like he tried something. I've got, I've got some more for you. Okay. Oh my god, your in, let me just say your instincts are close. Um, there is some other odd flippant behavior that happens this morning that I wanted to talk about for whatever reason. When Tom and Stacy um, show back up, I think Tom runs out with John, homeowner. While the cops are still there, body is still in the backyard. This is hard because you can hear they actually um, were able to get legally the body cam like audio, I think. Just the audio. They got Dunkin Donuts gift cards for the cops. There's a dead body in the backyard. I don't know how to make sense of all of these people acting with such a bizarre sense of familiarity and like normalizing this scene. But that is a shocking disturbing and grisly sight that the woman who was just in your house having a girl's night with you last night is face down in your backyard presumed to have fallen or you're saying possibly killed herself and you're out there getting dunkin donuts gift cards if that's not crazy enough madeline the aunt she starts baking starts making cookies for the cops this is insane like these people are I've said allegedly enough times in this that we won't get sued, but I'm getting so mad. Like, there, something's not right with these people. This is called entitlement, and this is called – this is, like, bribery, basically. I mean – Literally. Oh, textbook. Let's call it what it is. This is This is thinking that if you do enough, you know, sucking up that you'll get specialized – special treatment and – that's that's what it is. It's it's like a weird way that they're like not either not grasping the seriousness of the situation or like you said, they're like trying to kind of, I don't know, like keep the cops calm or like I don't. Yeah, because well, it's not even just the cop who we think might have some insidious hand in this. We think the, the county coroner who actually does get dismissed from his position. Two people get fired in this. He gets dismissed from his position. We think that he might have had something to do with this as well. Now, here is where your instincts about Jose come in full force. In a matter of months, Jose, the boyfriend of John, is fired from his job in law enforcement because he gets caught illegally trying to obtain the private case file of Tamla mm. to figure out what cops know and what their suspects, what their suspect list is, who's on it. Allegedly, 
He was not only trying to obtain details about what police knew thus far about the investigation and her body, but trying to get details about who they've talked to in Tamla's circle and her family. That is a pretty firm breach of conduct, and he is swiftly fired, although there is no legal action that is taken against him, and the exact reason for him prying into this case file is an unknown. It has never formally been disclosed. Additionally, like I said, there is evidence that comes to light once this case catches major traction with national media. The coroner, who surveyed the scene and said the body was found in this like weird falling man position, he has a pretty extensive documented history with racism that comes to light through some pictures that surface mm-hmm. posing recently with racial artifacts posing next to blackface he apparent from witnesses who have talked about him and his character and vouched for it or done the opposite they have said that he is outwardly racist so it's not a good day to see that this is the person who was put on the case to survey a scene and starts to come up with a story saying yep Looks like she fell. Looks like she fell to me. I mean, her arms are out to the side. Whole house is saying, but they weren't out to the side before. He said, that's how I found them. <sighs> some se- some severe inconsistencies here. None of which, like I'll say, add up with a woman who fell off a four and a half foot ledge or railing. She's five and a half feet tall, went down face first, 14 feet. Oh, oh, oh. And one more. The security log, because, you know, John has security cameras all around her house, conveniently never taped anything. (laughs) So we have no idea. There's no footage, really, of what happened. All we can assume is that the downstairs door, if the security log is to be believed, opened at 1.57 a.m., never got closed again, and then we roll around to 8 a.m., 8.30, when Madeline comes down and saw this body. How do you feel? Well, let me just back up and also say Jose was one of the only people that was still awake, correct? That night? Yes. Bridget and Jose were the allegedly the last people to see her that night because Jose was going down to the basement. Right. Allegedly. (laughs) I'm going to say allegedly and cover my own ass. Yeah. Um, Well, I mean, Bridget also, she said that in her statement as well that he was coming downstairs and he's gone on the record to say that. So that's what he says. My gut is going towards something happened with Jose being involved in either her falling and then staging the body Mm -hmm. or I, and I'm not even saying like he was trying to put the moves on her or something. I mean, I'm just saying, some something happened between the two of them is how I feel. I just think it's too weird. I agree. I agree. Well, it's um I should I mean fast forward, the case does get closed after this like the GBI comes out with their findings and they're like, "Yep, there's no foul play." But again, we can't trust them. They're full of it. So allegedly, <laughs> Jesus Christ. <laughs> I can't stop saying it. But the case gets <laughs> they closed. They just get some Dunkin Donuts gift cards and send them right to the GBI. Seriously, apparently that does the trick. Now <laughs> Everybody starts coming after them once the case catches traction, like Tam- Tamla's family, um, her father, uh, her good friend Michelle Graves. Like, they're all completely shut out from the case, like I was saying. And Michelle Graves, this is the woman who gets sued by John, the homeowner, for damages to her character for allegations that she knew something about the case that has and has not disclosed it. 
Eventually, the case does catch new life in the media, and there are A-list celebrities. I think Kim Kardashian came out about this when she was like doing her legal thing. 50 Cent mm-hmm. talked about this, and they were calling for a reinvestigation into what happened the night Tamla died. Now, the problem is, is that the petition does work, and the case does get reopened. But for the life of me, I cannot understand why, but it gets reopened with the GBI, the case that had originally closed it as... I can't. Well, I guess maybe they have to. Maybe they're the only group that can. But if you're petitioning to reopen a case because you think that the bodies involved, like meaning like the the institutions involved that were investigating it are shifty, clearly you should get like a third person or a third party person. So the GBI reopens the case and (laughs) needless to say, they close it once again because they say, yep, this is consistent with our first investigation. No fault, no foul play. She fell. Now, what the family does get approval for and can commission is a second and private autopsy years after the fact. (gasps) Now, although there were certain details that they could not ascertain because the body at this point was severely decomposed and there are no reference. That's why it's so important in the initial autopsy to have photos to corroborate what the initial investigation said. What this medical examiner does find is a little inconsistent with the initial autopsy. He thinks it's very abnormal that the body had some exaggerations, it looked like, in the previous autopsy about the damages that maybe killed her. One being the most compelling is that the neck and the skull did have damage, um, but maybe not damage that could indicate a fall. What was interesting about this report is that the wrist appears to be dislocated, which this examiner made note of is not consistent with a fall, but possibly consistent with someone who was in the defensive mode. It's Mm -hmm. a defensive wound. They are pulling away and someone's grabbing them and their wrist gets dislocated. Possibly a fighting off scenario. And if that's the case, who was she fighting off? Well, you want my opinion? (laughs) Maybe that's what they pay for. That's what we're here for. I, was, I ask that jokingly because I guess I've made it known already. But I mean, that that tracks for me very much so. And you know what's really devastating about the initial autopsy, which is very abnormal to me, but there was no sexual trauma like kit or test that was done performed on the remains. There were no fingernail clippings, which is also something you would do when you're looking for evidence of uh, defensive death or defensive actions. So... There's really no way to corroborate what happened or what this finding could mean. But this examiner believes it looked like a defensive wound. And to no surprise from that initial ruling, um, there were no fingerprints that were ever taken from the initial crime scene. It was completely botched. So there is no concrete way to piece together the potential alternate story here. Mm -hmm. According to that autopsy, the evidence was so compelling that the Horsford attorney, family attorney, has outright gone on the record to say, based on the findings and the opinion of the medical examiner, the second one who took a look at her body, the death is more than likely a homicide. Now, what I found kind of compelling, just to try to do some, like, local research on this, because, again, I'm trying to get into the locals here and see, like, what people know. Mm-mm. There's only about seven to 10,000 people that live in this county. So 
it's shocking to me because I would think like this must have been a really big story. There's a really big handful of people in this town who had never even heard her name after this happened. And I found that so interesting to think about how insulated a small community like this might be. Because when we're talking about corruption, we often talk about county police. We talk about county coroner and we talk about like, I'll scratch your back, you scratch mine kind of thing. It's odd to think that even local publications and local media coverage could ice this story out so that it doesn't even become local lore, so that locals don't even have an opinion because it was kept within the confines of a street. And I know people still talk, but that really dawned on me big time where I was like, that is, that's, that's strange to me because this feels like a big story. Well, it smells like money to me. It, I mean, very it, it affluent community. With the whole affluent community. We've already seen, you know, hints of bribery um, sort of behavior. I mean, you can pay off journalists to not run a story. Absolutely. They don't. They won't like it, but you could certainly pay people off to make sure that a story is not run over and over again or on the news. Yeah, especially um, if somebody knows somebody or some. Like, I just get this feeling in this town, like everybody's interconnected in some way. It feels like a weird group effort. And think about how the whole group, it's a big group. It's what, 10 women plus their husbands plus Mm -hmm. their network. Yeah. If they all decide they're all going to go in on a story together, I mean, that's power in numbers. I mean, and they're all part of the affluent community. Something's wrong with that. Yeah, I, I agree. Something something about this doesn't feel right from the outside looking in. And like I said, there are theories in this case, but there's really only two scenarios. So I guess we can just talk through two of them really quick because there's one option here, which is the story that they're selling of like, how is it possible Tamla could have died and everyone is innocent in this case, maybe? Or is there a more credible story here to the Jose theory or the theory of foul play? So... In this case, in the two scenarios, it's possible. I was thinking about this like earlier today. It's possible when she went outside for her initial cigarette and that door opened at 149, maybe it's possible she actually decided not to have the cigarette then or she left something inside like her phone, right? So she opens the door at 149, the back door to go have the cigarette. And then she goes, oh, shoot, I left my phone inside, closes that door again at 140 or at 150 sorry so she's back inside to get her phone goes on it for a couple of minutes and then opens the door again at 157 like we saw that's when she's going outside to have the cigarette it still does not fully explain how the door was never closed and yet when police show up the door is closed so it's not foolproof but i was like that's certainly a different way to think about maybe how the door was opening and closing and what that could mean. What we still don't know is exactly how she obtained the Xanax or why she took it. Or if that could have impacted her judgment to the point where she thought, maybe I'm going to go up on this balcony and I'm going to climb up on it, you know? Or is it possible that she just misjudged it and thought, like, it's not that high and then lost her footing and accidentally fell all that way down? Does that feel like anything or is it just kind of flat? I just, I still, I still can't get over the hoisting herself over the railing. That just seems so weird to me. Like, especially if you're taking Xanax and you've been drinking, you're like 
probably like not really in a position to be strong enough to like pull yourself over a railing. Like you would literally have to be so out of it that you just kind of like over the side. Mm -hmm. And I would think if you over the side and your body's kind of lifeless, that when you fall, you're going to be like really in an odd position or have stuff be loosey goosey. You're not going to be a plank on the ground. The the plank position is the most disturbing and strangest part of this to me. Cause I was, I was willing to believe I'm like what you're saying. Okay. She, she's feeling the effects of the Xanax, but doesn't realize it yet as she's going up to have this like cigarette on the upper balcony. And then she starts feeling it flips over, or maybe she's even passing out. I mean, I don't, I really don't know like what could have happened. She's passing out flips over. And maybe that's why she didn't brace herself because she's falling unconscious And that is how she hits the floor or hits the ground dead on straight impact. And then I think to explain if we're not going with foul play, I think to explain the repositioning of the body, I think it's possible it could have just been laziness from shady and racist cops and coroners. Like they they show up there and they're like, I mean, they're like, this looks like a fall, but I mean, it's, it's a little odd. I mean, her position is not really natural. So Maybe not to tie. Maybe just, make just it yeah, look like it. yeah, yeah, yeah. Maybe it's just like not tie this up. They're like, let's just like, you gotta cock the arm out a little bit and like put this one down by the side. That looks like a fall. But at the point, at that point, it was too late because people, witnesses had already seen the body in this strange plank position. That is the only version of this, even though it feels wicked thin. Where I'm like, that's just a really terrible story. Where technically everyone is innocent, but clearly there was like some cover up here. Whatever scenario you take in this. Somebody touched that body. Somebody moved that body. The only other thing I was thinking is, let's say she falls Mm -hmm. and her body is so relaxed from the Xanax and drinking that she actually like maybe didn't just like for some reason when she fell, her body was in a way that it wasn't going to like fully break bones. And I don't know, this is maybe this is counterintuitive to what actually should happen if you're super relaxed and you fall, but like, no, but that's true. People survive car accidents because of that. That's why usually this is really grim, but in drunk driving accidents, the person who usually survives is the drunk driver, sadly, because their body is so relaxed. relaxed. Yeah. Okay. So I'm thinking like, what if she actually did fall? She's so relaxed though. That, like, she falls and she's like, oh, my God, like, something's wrong with me. And then she kind of puts her arms down at her side because she, like, can't really move. And then for oh, some reason, what like if she Like, she doesn't die right die? away. Is that what you were thinking? Yeah, she doesn't die right away. And then mm. and then when the cops get there the next morning, everybody's mm-hmm. like, oh, shit, what the hell happened? Did somebody give her something? What's going on? Yeah. Nobody ever admits to the Xanax thing. Because they're all like, we're going to keep quiet because obviously she had way too much and this happened under our watch. Yeah, on someone's so, property. Like it's, it's on a somebody's whole. somebody's property. Yeah. Like, it's a whole li- thing. They're thinking about like liability stuff, which is really yes. sick in this. Like they're yes. thinking about covering their ass when there's a woman dead, yeah. a mother dead in their backyard. Yes. Yes. I totally can see a scenario like that. The problem with it and where the hole gets poked is that even so, well, her neck was broken for sure. Her neck was broken, which we're assuming happened from the fall, if we're going with what the GBI put out. But it's very clear she was face first when she hit the ground, but she had no broken nose, no teeth missing, according to, like, 
how she fell if she did fall. That's a little strange. I think Jose picking up and putting the cigarette and the lighter on the fire pit is strange. I think the door being closed, but there's no record of that be- at all mm-hmm. in the log is strange. And I also think Jose prying into the case file and getting fired for it is too weird. I mean, it could just, you could chalk it up and say, like, maybe it's just true curiosity. He's like, I want to know what's going on in the case, but it's a pretty big risk. I, I feel like somebody would have to have some serious motive to put their job on the line like that to try to get some insider information of an investigation. Yeah. I don't know. I mean, should we run through the the alternate theory, the allegations that it could be a homicide? And if so, is Jose Barrera at fault? Should Let's we? do it because, okay. you know, I'm I'm ready. <laughs> <clears throat> so what is this theory? Now, most of the allegations of homicide, of course, point to the homeowner's boyfriend, Jose Barrera. He arguably seemed the most guilty as he qu- was quite literally fired from the job for illegally trying to access her case file before the investigation had closed. But more importantly, if you remember the timeline, like we said before, he was technically the second to last person to see Tamla alive and nearly alone in the kitchen because he knew Bridget was leaving that night. So is it possible that he took that as a window of opportunity? Like I said, he's also law enforcement. So if something went awry, there's probability here that he is someone who at least had a baseline knowledge And would maybe try to attempt to cover something up or stage something to piece together a different story than what might have happened. The allegations of this story suggest that earlier in the night, Jose had possibly taken it upon himself to make a move on Tamla or maybe wanted to do it after everyone was asleep. So these allegations suggest that he might have been the one who slipped the Xanax into her drink very late. That night, which I should also say, that was something. I didn't even think about that. Yes, it's believed he well because nobody took credit for it. And if Bridget is to be believed, which some people really do believe her story, she's gone on the record. She's like, I did not give her my Xanax, but I'm the only one there who had Xanax. Like she's at least honest about that. She very well could have said, like, I take Xanax, but I didn't have any with me that night. That's why I had to go home. She's like, No, I had Xanax on me, but I didn't give her any Xanax. So some people think he may have slipped. Xanax into Tamla's drink with the intention of getting her to be a little looser later in the night after everyone went to sleep because he knew that she didn't have a sleeping buddy and she was going to be alone downstairs on John's goddamn couch solo all night. Here's the other part of that. I just had it. Oh my God. Gave her the Xanax. We think the weed. No, the weed, the weed was, that wasn't the other part of it. There's something else. I'm trying to think. He knew she was going to be alone, possibly gave her the Xanax. Oh my God, I totally lost my train of thought. I'm so sorry. No, I'm with you though. I'm like, what could it be? What could it be? Because I was thinking maybe he was still pissed at her having the weed in the house or maybe it got well, he didn't he didn't actually know about that i mean unless john okay, had told okay. him but he didn't know about that yeah. i can't even imagine i mean most county cops like if they're in a social yeah, setting like, like why that why would he really care unless yeah, like, he had a vendetta against her because of the color of her skin for some reason was like gonna get her for that but in, i entirely that possible. Is so dark well, most people have the some people have thought of it in that way. A lot of people have mostly taken like the sexual sexual predator approach and that maybe he tried to slip her the Xanax so he could make the move on her prior to her death 
So then when Bridget leaves, is it possible he goes upstairs and he starts kind of making his pass at Tamla or it's possible. Okay. She says goodbye to Bridget, right? Opens the the door to close it. You know, she makes sure she gets out to the car. That's at 147. Then at 149, we've got that back door opening. And at 150, she goes out to have that cigarette. It's possible that Jose took the opportunity at 157 to open the door to the downstairs. So he follows her out. Mm-hmm. And then something happened. So that would explain why after 157, we don't see that door closing again. Does that feel like something? Maybe. Okay. So maybe is it possible he tries to make a move on her with the effects of the Xanax and the alcohol? They're starting to take place. She's maybe a little bit out of it because it was super early that she had. Oh, my God. Now I remember what I was going to tell you. Sorry. Before I forget it. The importance of this theory about the Xanax being slipped into a drink is important because the crime scene was botched because they never collected any of the alcohol or the drinks in the home that night to test if any of the drinks had been drugged. So we have no way of knowing whether or not somebody was slipped something or, you know, like something that happened there. So maybe she's feeling the effects of the Xanax. She's on the upstairs balcony. Then she gets defensive and tries to fight back because she's like coming to her. She's like, what the hell is going on? Dislocates her wrist in the process because he's trying to keep her restrained or keep her quiet. It's possible she even tried to break away from him and then went over the balcony. So she did hit the ground, broke her neck but did not go face first. So then he panicked and tried Mm -hmm. to stage the body so that it was going to look like she just jumped off the balcony, but was not thinking maybe he had never actually seen somebody jump. So he just put it in a position where he's like face down, arms at the side. That's clear as day. Like she fell straight off that balcony, but only a coroner would know like that's not natural. You know, like a body would fall in a falling man's position. The only other scenario here is that he then either did it without John knowing or he worked with John to delete those logs off the Xfinity security system to show the doors right, opening and closing. Right, that's what I was thinking. Because so so with this theory, mm-hmm. she falls off the balcony because he's pushed her or whatever. Or yes. she like fell because he was she coming was, on she to was her breaking and away. something yeah, happened. Something like that. Breaking away. And so he knows that the door is still open downstairs. He slips out the door, fixes the body, and then slips back in, doesn't close the door because he knows his own house and knows that if he shuts it, it'll look funky. Right? Yeah, totally. I mean, it makes perfect sense. And also what ran through my mind is like, in what world would this happen not under his own roof? Like he, I'm sure, felt... Like, it just makes more sense to me for all this to happen and him be involved because it's his home. He knows well, where it's, everything it's not, is. Well, it's not his home. I should clarify that. It's John's oh, home. Yeah, Jose. Well, it's Jose, John's home, but he is her he's boyfriend. Just the boyfriend. He's just the boyfriend. I don't know if he lived there full time, but I think it's suggested he did. I'm sure he yeah. acts like he runs the home. I'm sure, I'm sure he's, like, <laughs> there all the time and is, you know, there yeah. enough that he knows the home. I mean, I think that there's a certain level of you know, arrogance there when it's like, you're the one that's also, let's also speak to the, uh, the idea that he was like, actually, I want to stay home tonight. Hello. He was not even supposed to be there in the first place. Why are you there? He also, that spells it out for me. You made me think of something just now about like how he probably acts like he runs the home. If you remember on the 911 call, I think he's the one who brings up the security cameras. Kind of like he's already like sussed that out. He was like, I mean, she's got security cameras on this house. So 
they must have seen something, probably knowing full well those cameras were dead, did not capture anything that night. I'm just saying, she's got possibly a defensive wound on the wrist, dislocated wrist. She's got lacerations found on the legs, the arms, her neck, her face. And then she's got a broken neck for sure. So that either happened from like chokehold or him breaking a neck and trying to restrain her or knock her out. Or he pushed her or she broke away from him, went 14 feet down. You fall 14 feet on your neck. You are dead. So yeah. she's dead. She's dead then. And that would explain why her nose wasn't broken, why she still had all her teeth, because she didn't hit the ground face first. But he certainly positioned it that way. Yeah. To make it look like she was drunk and drugged, like had drunken herself into death. Yeah. Like she just accidentally flew right over a deck railing. Yeah. (sighs) We can never know for sure, but there is some compelling evidence to this case. I just wish that people weren't so hush hush because one of those women mm-hmm. Bridget especially having been the last person there one of those women knows like the dynamics of that group and his involvement how well did he know Tamla like how well did he know the other women did they find it odd that he decided to actually stay over like it's just it's something is weird mm-hmm. there's just two I mean so- to chalk it up to like this is all just like a bad string of coincidences that make everybody look bad, I think is that's that's downplaying it big time. Yeah. Big time. The Dunkin' Donuts gift cards too, just like all the we- the baking of the cookies when there's a dead body in the backyard. What the hell? I can't wrap my mind around these people. It really is giving Jean Bonnet. It's it, giving that same yeah. vibe of like, oh, Sorry, 146, everything's gone down. It's happened several <laughs> times already, baby. I've had a little notepad Oh, my open. God. <laughs> oh, my God. Have I been cussing? Only like two or three times. <laughs> oh, my God. I am not on my A game. No, I'm you're just, you're compelled pissed. by the case. I, I almost compelled. did, too. I had to stop myself a couple of times because I was getting heated. But those are, I mean, I, I know I said we would have theories here, but those are really the only two scenarios of what could have happened, right? I mean... Or the or the idea that she killed herself, but I mean, I just I rule that out. I don't think you go to an adult sleepover, mm-hmm. a girls' night in, and decide to do something like that. That yeah. night, some people have tried to make the case for that, and they're like, no, because of the otherism, because she was like shut out from the group. It was really that paired with like she was cross faded. It really took a toll on her. So when she was up there, she just decided to jump. And I'm like, I don't see that. I don't think so. I really not a don't. mother of six. It, it does not, yeah, it doesn't make sense for me. There was another, and I don't know very much about this theory, so I can't talk much about it, but there is a whole other allegation. I will, to preface to God, this is an allegation that Tamla had actually died earlier that night, and then it was a group effort with the entire party to stage this. Oh, my God. That is really, really insidious and dark, but... Yeah. I mean, we still have unanswered questions about that Xanax and how, you know, drastically that may have affected her cognition, her ability to like fight someone off. But something here doesn't add up for me. I don't know where Jose Barrera is today, but there was, like I said, there was no legal action taken against him, but he was fired. I would be curious to hear, like, if there are any people who do know the case in the county, how they feel about him and whether or not he could know something. 
And also, I'd be curious to know if he and John are still together. I don't know if I read anything about that. There was something a while ago, and I can't find it anywhere. So this could be false. It's just, again, just an allegation. But there was a Facebook status that she wrote at the time when, like, friends and people were talking about this case on Facebook early, early on in the case. I'm talking, like, week one of the case, possibly even day one, where because word is spreading. Tamla Horsford found dead at, you know, John's house. She wrote something and said she did not fall and then deleted it. Oh, my God. I don't know if this is verifiable, but I specifically yeah. remember people covering that in this case and people like citing it and showing screenshots of the status it was something i'm paraphrasing it but it was something to that effect where she was like i know what happened in my home tamla horsford did not fall from my deck and then it got deleted i don't know what we can make of that if that's well, it's her. either two things she was either trying to say Tamla like took her own life like did this to herself or mm-hmm. that somebody else knows something but yeah. either either scenario is probably not um like a confession I mean, I maybe yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. So, and I like, think somebody was like take that down right now because <laughs> we yeah we have a story that we're trying to go off of and you're not playing by the rules take that down totally there we go again 149 oh 149 <laughs> oh my god well with that uh, maybe that's a sign we do need to wrap but Stu, that is everything mm-hmm. we know about the grisly and mysterious death of tamla horsford we haven't done one like that in a while like a a true like odd death what is Very your final consensus death. i want to hear what your final thoughts are on this how you feel allegedly. i still <laughs> i feel like um well, it's the whole concept of this being like an adult sleepover is just like really throwing me for some reason. Like it's just very bizarre circumstances already because it's probably they went into the night being like, woo, like we're going to have so much fun. And then it's like kind of a horror movie, like very it much is, a yeah. horror movie trope. Something I'll send you some of the videos and stuff. It'll, it is chilling to see them like oh in the God, kitchen, like playing cards. Of course, because they were all posted on socials the night, the oh night God. of like. Them playing cards against humanity, like they're taking group pictures, they're taking shot, like they're drinking together, they're having a good time. Yeah. Oh my god! So that already is just it feels like a horror movie, and then I just think in my gut that the most logical conclusion is you've got two people that are left when all this goes down. Mm-hmm. I just think that something happened with Jose getting into some sort of either altercation or something went awry. I think the Xanax is a big thing. I think that that definitely had something to do it. either. We, it was, yeah, it's there. She was I mean, either it's... drugged or she took it and became way too like relaxed. Just her body chemistry at that point, something was going to go down wrong. Um, you know what I thought was interesting about the Xanax too, is that that came from the talk screen, which I think is an independent lab from the, the medical examiner's office. So the autopsy is one thing if we think the GBI is corrupt, but a talk screen, that's coming from it like a, a different lab that's testing blood. Yeah. You know, they're looking yeah. at samples. So I would take what they found to be truth because I think if the GBI had their hands on it and could manipulate it, I think they would probably omit the Xanax. I think they would probably yeah. keep it to like the story. She had weed and alcohol in her system. Well, unfortunately, <laughs> fortunately, 
they, or I'm saying, unfortunately for them, they needed the alcohol component to be a big part of the story. They did. And so you've got to run the talk screen for the alcohol, which will show the Xanax. So, um, yeah, I just, I definitely think that something, my gut says something nefarious happened. It's not just a random act of falling off or suicide. I think it's something darker. That's three counts against Georgia. We have had some really dark cases come out of Georgia. I, I'm like, God, I can't believe I, <laughs> I hail from there and I, I this is sad. Well, to be um, fair, I mean, the insidious things happen everywhere, all over the world in every country, every state. But yeah, there's something about this where the environment is so specific that it doesn't feel like a force fit story. It feels like, if anything, we're missing a puzzle piece and there are things that haven't been answered, but I'm very, very happy we covered it because like I said, we don't get to cover stories like this all too often of mysterious deaths. And this is certainly one that should receive more attention because as far as I know, the family is still petitioning. I think for the FBI to get their hands on this federal. I mean, listen, if you've got Kim Kardashian behind you, I'm saying that seriously. Like hopefully we will see some sort of, something come to light with it i hope i hope so this is something we can put our energy towards the tamla horsford case but with that Stu, i will wrap us up thank you everybody for listening to the second episode of the second season for creep time the podcast and to the mysterious death of tamla horsford we are going to be back next week sue is there any final word should we do say anything before we leave is that it well, I think you're forgetting good night and good luck. Goodbye and good luck. <laughs> <laughs> Which I'm like, how did the where did that come from again? I know that there's isn't good night and good luck like a famous movie? Is it? I was gonna say I was like, we should switch to good night and good luck. It's spookier. But I think it's goodbye and good luck. But goodbye like, and good luck I'm is what we curious. say. Goodbye, because I said goodbye and you filled in the good luck, which is why it's <laughs> it's it's etched into stone. It's Bible now. Yeah, it's a movie, a two thousand five. Which one? Good night or goodbye? Film. Which one? Good night and good luck with George Clooney. <laughs> no, great. So we can't good take it. Good night and good luck. I know. Fine. We'll we'll, we'll, we'll so trademark we'll the other goodbye one. Goodbye and good luck. Goodbye yeah. and good luck, y'all. And good luck. <laughs> Bye, guys. Bye, creepers. <laughs> <laughs>